How you doing this weekend? That's great. It's great to be with you. Uh, my name is Jeff Surratt. I'm one of the teaching pastors at Seacoast, and I'm glad that you could join us. It's always a privilege to, to teach here. I want to say hi to those of you who are joining us at one of our other campuses, or maybe you're in the chapel or you are uh, in the warehouse. This weekend, I really want to say a special greeting to those of you who join us online each week. I've been able to worship with you guys several times, and it's cool to see the community that goes on, especially in the chat over next to the screen and the, the just community and prayer requests and just stuff going on and small groups going on online. So we are uh, glad, glad that you are uh, with us on the Internet this, this weekend. <clears throat> We're going to continue our series we started last weekend um, called Outward Bound. It's based on the book of Titus. And We're going to dive into Titus in a minute. If you brought a Bible with you, go ahead and pop it open. Uh, Titus is after 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, then Titus. It's in the New Testament. If you brought a uh, BlackBerry or a smartphone of some kind, go ahead and uh, find the Bible on there. YouVersion will do it. Bible Gateway will do it. But you're really going to need it this weekend. If you're going to stay along with what we're doing, you're going to need to pop that Bible open. What if I told you today that I can tell you with no doubt what God's will for your life is. How many of you would be interested to know what that is? You'd like to know a lot of people. It's interesting because anytime we do a series or we uh, talk about finding God's will, it's always a very popular message. A lot of people will buy the DVD, they'll download the MP3 because we want to know what does God want for my life. And we want to know who does God want me to marry and where does God want me to live and what job does God want me to have. And so we we want to hear that. And, And those things are very important. They're important to God. God is interested in the details of your life and my life. In fact, at one point, Jesus says that, that God numbers the hairs on our head. I wonder with Greg if he actually names the hairs. Because, you know, I mean, I mean, there's not a lot there to deal with. So numbering wouldn't, I probably should. I hope Greg's not joining us online this weekend. If he is, it was fun working with you. It's good stuff. <clears throat> but sometimes when we're talking about what does God want me to do with my life, we can miss the forest for the trees, get so concerned about those details that we miss the big picture. Because the truth is, the reality is, is God is very specific about what his will is for our lives. And I'm going to tell you today, no hype. I'm not kind of, you know, just going to lead you down a path. I'm telling you the truth. I will tell you through this message today what God's will specifically, individually, for your life is. The book of Titus is very, very clear about God's will and and how it applies to us each as individually. Let me explain it like this. God's will for your life, first of all, is that you be a missionary and that you be a missionary in your own community, in your own neighborhood, in your own home. Think about it this way. If you found out you were going to be a missionary in Africa or in India or in China, what would you do? You would start studying the culture. You would study the language. You would try to understand the food. You would try to figure out how can I relate to these people in a way that I could convey the good news of the gospel when I move there. Well, the truth is, is God has called every one of us to be a missionary. Some of us, he has called to go to Africa, some to go to South America, But most of us, he calls right to the community that you live in right now. So we live as a missionary to share the good news in our own community. The word that we use for that is missional. 
So you remember that word. We've used it a few times. Missional. God's will for you, first of all, is that you be missional, on mission for God in your community. And the second part of God's will for your life is that you are the hands and feet of Jesus. You are not just there sharing the good news, but you are carrying on the ministry that Jesus started when he was on earth. So however Jesus lived in a village or uh, acted at church or uh, was involved in work, you do the same things. You're the hands and feet of Jesus. The word for that that we use is incarnational, hands and feet of Jesus. So God's will for your life is very clear. God has called you to be missional and incarnational, on mission from God as the hands and feet of Jesus in the context that he has placed you. And that's what Titus is about. Last week in chapter one, uh, we talked about the fact that Paul dropped his young protege, Titus, on the Isle of Crete. And he said, Titus, while you're here, I want you to be a missionary. I want you to be missional and incarnational. Last weekend, we went through chapter one when Paul told him how to be a missional leader. This weekend in chapter two, we're going to look at how to be a, live a missional lifestyle. So before we dive in, would you guys pray with me? Father, thank you for this weekend. And Lord, what an amazing <clears throat> honor it is always uh, to share your word. And Lord, to do it here at Seacoast is just, just blows me away. Um, Lord, I want to be your representative today. I, I, I just want to open the Bible look at what Paul wrote to Titus and figure out what that means to us today in 21st century America. And so, Lord, I pray that you'll open our minds and open our ears. And Lord, I pray that you'll use my words to convey your truth and ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. In chapter one, Paul finishes the chapter talking about what a miserable leader looks like. And in the last verse, he gives a description He says uh, they are detestable, disobedient, worthless for doing anything good. And now he turns the page. He turns it over. He says, okay, Titus, that's what not to do. Now, let me talk to you about what you should do. And he says to Titus in verse 1 of chapter 2, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Now, what do you think of when you think of doctrine? When I think of doctrine, I think of a set of beliefs, a set of facts that I need to know and understand. But uh, after Paul says, teach sound doctrine, he then spends most of the rest of the chapter not talking about facts and not talking about beliefs, but talking about lifestyle. The reason for that is we cannot have sound doctrine if we're not living it out. And the reality is in Southern America, in the Bible Belt, most of us have all the knowledge that we need. We understand enough about God and about the Bible and about Jesus What we have to learn to do is how to live out what we already know. And so that's what Paul does is he gives very specific instructions. Here's how you live a missional lifestyle. Here's what sound doctrine looks like in someone who's living out God's purpose, God's will in their life. He breaks it down in chapter two into five demographics. So we're going to take a look at those five demographics. The first is older men. He says, let me talk to you first about older men. Now, how do you know you're an older man? Well, I have good news. I have some little signs that you may be an older man. Maybe these will help you out just a little bit. If you and your teeth don't sleep together, you may be an older man. Maybe helpful for you. 
If you go to pull up or if you go to straighten out the wrinkles in your socks and realize you're not wearing socks, you may be an older man. If for you happy hour means taking a nap, you may be an older man. If you sink your teeth into a good steak and they stay there, you may be an older man. If getting lucky means finding your car in the parking lot, you are definitely an older man. So now that we know who we are, because I am one of those guys, let's look at what Paul talks about, what we should learn, what we should do as older men. He says uh, in verse 2, Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. He gives us six attributes of living a missional lifestyle as an older man. The first is that we are to be sober-minded. The original Greek there refers specifically to alcohol, to wine. He says the, the, the context of this, of this word says that either we abstain from wine or we drink it very much in moderation. We talked about this last weekend. Paul talks about the fact that alcohol use should be seen within the context of your mission in life. Does the way I use alcohol inhibit or enhance the mission God's called me to? So he says, as older men, we should be sober-minded, dignified, self-control, sound in love, sound in faith, sound in steadfastness. If I were to take all of that and put it in one word picture, I would describe it as an anchor. Paul is calling us as older men to be anchors in life, someone that people can turn to in a storm, someone that others know that they can rely on, someone who who can be uh, counted on. I think the way we would look at that or the way I would look at it is one, that we don't we stop competing with younger men. We stop trying to look like them and dress like them and win all the contests and stay ahead of all the younger guys. A, a, a friend of mine, a mentor in my life, explained it to me a, a few years ago. He said, "Jeff, in the age that we're at, we need to we need to start looking at how we can be dads to younger guys. We need to figure out." how we can be the father that maybe they never had or maybe their dad is distant or or in another place and we can be that dad in their lives. We need to not give in to the middle-aged crazies. You know, instead of getting the bigger boat, the faster car or the younger woman, we need to look at how we can mentor younger guys, how we can prepare them for what's ahead, how we can tell them, here's what I've learned, here are the lessons I'm learning, here's how I can help, help you. Bob Buford, a few years ago, wrote a book called Halftime. If you're in my stage of life, maybe looking at 40s or 50s, I really encourage you to read read this book. And there's a couple of concepts he talks about. One is the concept of becoming the platform rather than the show, saying that as an older guy, we should begin to look for how can we be the platform for other people rather than the show that other people are looking at. We saw this demonstrated at Seacoast over the last two or three years, and you guys didn't even realize it. Uh, Pastor Mac Lake, who just left Seacoast and and is working now in Atlanta, um, about three years ago said, you know what, I want my focus here at Seacoast to be a platform for younger guys. One of the things he did is he, he stopped teaching much on the weekends. That's why you didn't see Mac very often. He said, I want to give my times that I would teach to younger teachers so they can grow and they can learn. He became the platform. The other thing that Bob Buford talks about is in our lives, moving from success 
to significance, saying that when you get to your 40s and your 50s and as an older man, you've achieved some success in life. Maybe you've done well in business or in family or as a parent or there are areas in your life that you have figured out some things. He says rather than continuing to strive for more and more and more, there comes a point where you say, you know what, I have enough. How can the rest of my life be significant? How can I have significance? And that is the idea of giving our lives away. So to older men, Paul says, be an anchor. Now Paul turns his attention in chapter two to older women, which is a challenge because we don't have any older women here at Seacoast. Um, I realize in Greenville and Greensboro, Asheville, you guys have the same challenge. There aren't any older women at Seacoast. But you may know some older women, so you can tell them what Paul said for them to do. Is that okay? That'll probably be easier for us to work through this. Paul says uh, in chapter 3, Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and to train the young women. He gives four characteristics for older women. He says, first of all, reverent in behavior. You know, another way to say that is older women... Act your age. It's, there's nothing sadder than seeing a, uh, a, a beautiful, significant older woman who is trying to be something that she's not, who is dressing or acting, trying to be in her 20s, and, and, and it's, it's sad. One of the best examples I've seen of this kind of, of, of exhibiting reverent in behavior is uh, Pastor Vern Jensen, his wife, Migsy. Now, Migsy... Uh, might fall in the category of older woman. I don't know. She's in her late 40s or 70s, somewhere, somewhere in that range. She's somewhere between 70 and 100. I don't know where it's at. Migsy's awesome. She is a blast. She is a life of a party. She just got back from her first mission trip to Haiti. I mean, that's how she lives her life. But Migsy's not competing with any younger woman. She is very comfortable with the stage of life she is in. She's a mentor. She's a model for other women. And I, when I think of reverent in behavior, I think of, of, of Migsy Jensen. Paul goes on to say not only reverent in behavior, but um, not slanderers, not slanderers. Now, this is a hard one for me to talk about because uh, I'm not a woman, but I've talked to the women in my life and they say that women can be very hard on each other. They say women can spend a lot of their time analyzing how other women dress how other women raise their children, how other women interact with men, how other women interact with women, how other women eat, how other women talk, how other women breathe. You kind of get the idea. (laughs) Paul says that if you're going to live a missional lifestyle as an older woman, you're going to give up the sport of slandering each other. Uh, My wife Sherry said, here's how she would say it, just quit talking about each other. And that's, I think, what Paul is saying. So he revered in behavior, not slandering. The next thing he says is not slaves to wine. It's interesting. This is the third time in two chapters Paul has mentioned alcohol. I would say that on Crete, they had a problem with alcohol. There were probably a society who had problems about, with drinking. They're, like another society. Um, oh, America, that's the one. Yeah, yeah. Not slaves to wine. And then he says to teach what is good. I love the phrase in the Greek says, a teacher of goodness. What a, what a job description, huh? As an older woman, I am a teacher of goodness. If I were to put it into a word picture, as an older man, Paul's saying, be an anchor. 
the older women, he's saying, be a mentor, be a mentor. Nancy Ortberg puts it this way. She says that older women should put younger women on their shoulders so that they can teach them what they know. And so the older women can tell them, uh, or the younger women can tell them what they see down the road. What a beautiful word picture. Passing on your life to others. You know, that's what immortality is. It means that your life will go on. It's an amazing purpose in life. So Paul says to older men, be an anchor. To older women, be a mentor. Now he turns his attention to to younger women in verse 4. He says to the older women, train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. He gives six instructions to older women or to younger women. The first instruction is to love your husbands and your children. And that's pretty self-explanatory. But what does that mean for women who aren't married or or maybe they don't have children of their own? I want you to meet a a lady named Lindsay who lives in New York City. You kind of learn from her lifestyle. When I first moved to New York City, I thought I knew why I was coming here. It was going to be an adventure. I had my own agenda. I had no idea how much I would fall in love with the kids of the city and how much they would teach me about myself and change my life. I treasure my morning commutes on the subway. It's my time. Sometimes it's my only time with God. In those moments, I know his love for me, and I know that that's going to carry on throughout my day, and I know it's going to help me to do my job well. The Bronx is one of the toughest neighborhoods in the country. 75% of the people live below the poverty line, and where there's poverty, of course, there's going to be violence and sadness and strife, ugliness. Right in the middle of the Bronx is Middle School 223, where I'm a reading and writing teacher to sixth graders. It's where I spend my days every day. A lot of our kids at our school go home to shelters. They go home to homes where they are in charge. They see people get shot in front of their apartment door. Life has not been easy for them or kind to them. Morning. Good morning. Hey guys. Things are coming in quietly. Many of my students haven't been loved well. They've been abandoned. They've been promised things that have never come. They've been promised relationships with their fathers or mothers that have never happened. And so they're just worn. They're weathered. And they don't trust love. On the first day of school, the first thing that I tell them is, I've been thinking about you all summer. Like, I love you already. You may not believe this, but you can't earn my love. You could make straight A's all year and have perfect behavior all year, or you can get detention three times a week and I'm gonna love you the same. And then I spend all year trying to prove it. So I want you to think back to Monday. We chose that one personal narrative that we're going to publish and celebrate and put out there to the world. Who am I as a person? 
what do I really want people to know about who I am? Well, it wasn't until recently that I realized that God had been preparing me for this job, for these kids at the school right now. I grew up in Georgia, mostly at my grandmother's house because my mom and dad were divorced. And then when my dad got married, I felt like I wasn't good enough. He, he wanted me to be perfect. I just wasn't good enough anymore. But I know I don't need other people to say I'm okay anymore. I did that my whole life. And I think I'm finally done. So maybe now I can just be Lindsay. And if I make mistakes, then oh well. I'm not only as good as what I do. Growing up, and especially now, even as an adult, I still long for that love and acceptance. And God has shown that to me and given that to me so that I can go and give these kids the same love and acceptance that they have always wanted too. Over time, I really do believe this classroom becomes a safe haven for them, a place where they feel accepted and they know they're going to be safe and it's comfortable. I think God loves these kids so much, more than I could ever hope to love them. But I think He wants them to rest and to be happy. I think He wants to heal their hearts. Every day they walk out of my classroom, and at the end of the year, they walk out of my classroom forever. It's so hard. It's hard not knowing what lies ahead for them or what type of choices they'll make, and I just have to rest. I've done everything I could do. I've loved them the best that I can. And my hope is that they'll figure out that God loves them so much more than I ever could. Lindsay loves who God has entrusted her with. I think Paul's instruction to young women to love your husbands, love your children, could be expanded to say, love who I've entrusted you with. Maybe it's students, maybe it's patients, maybe it's uh, co-workers, maybe it's employees. Whatever it is, love who you've been entrusted with. Paul says to young women to have self-control, to be pure, both internal purity and external purity. As you're thought life and your internal life pure? Is your external life pure? The way you act, the way you talk, the way you dress, does, how does it impact the people around you? If you wonder if you are giving an image that uh, says that I am pure, that I am a missional uh, leader, uh, I'm living a missional lifestyle, if you don't know, ask the people around you, how, does my ac- how do my actions, my talk, my dress, how do they impact other people? And then Paul says that that a a missional lifestyle for a young woman is working at home. Now, he doesn't mean that you should only work at home. If you look at Proverbs chapter 31, it's very clear. Proverbs 31 gives uh, things that a a Christian woman could strive toward. It's very clear. It talks about both women who work at home and women who work outside the home. 
thought about how this works at our house. When, when we got married, uh, well, to go back a little bit, the, the, the Greek here, working at home, means keeper of the house. Keeper of the house. What does that mean? Well, when we first got married, Sherry and I, 28 years ago, Sherry was given a very rough draft of a man. My mom was wonderful, um, but I grew up believing that clothes were magic. I believe that when you t- dropped them on the floor in your room, they disappeared and then they reappeared a couple of days later, folded in your drawer, ready for you to wear again. I also thought that dishes, when you were done eating, floated off the table, went to a magic place, and then wound up back in the cabinet. I had no idea how all of that worked. And so when we got married, I thought that magic would continue. Well, Sherry was in college. Early in our marriage, we had a baby, then we had another baby, and then she was working, and I was working. And she's been amazing. I mean, she's and I don't mean this funny at all. She's been very, very patient and helped me learn how we share some of those things at, at home. But she's the keeper of the house. I don't mean that she um, does all the housework or does all the bills or is the one who raises the kids. I think of it more maybe as a, as a watchman. She keeps a watch on the house. When the kids were young, she would come to me and say, hey, have you noticed this going on with Mike or, or with Britt? And she looks around the house. Is it, is it being kept the way we want it to? Are we headed in the direction we want to go? And, and then I think that's kind of what Paul's talking about, working at home, keeper of the house, kind of a watchman there. Paul says to be pure, working at home, being kind, submissive to their own husbands. These verses, this verse could be very difficult I think, to to absorb as a young woman. It would be easy to say, you know what? I'm my own person. Why should I live this way? I I have rights and I have rights to live my life the way I want to live. And what I want to say is this verse is not about right and wrong. And it's not about what rights you, you have. It's about missional living. It's about being called by God to share the good news with the people around you in the most winsome way that, that you can. And so he says, this is how that can work. Uh, Paul puts it best in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He says, all things are lawful, <clears throat> but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. The word picture I see here for an older man, word picture of anchor, for an older woman, um, mentor, for a younger woman, I see a word picture of a lighthouse. A missional young woman gives up her right to live only for herself, but instead is willing to learn from older, wiser women around her how she can be a lighthouse to other people. Now, Paul goes on, he talks about older men, older women, younger women. Now he talks about younger men. He says in in verse 6, likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Now, it's interesting. Paul, talking to the younger women, gives them six instructions. To younger men, he only gives them one. Now, a couple of possibilities. One, it could be that younger women have a lot more work that needs to be done. That's a possibility. Okay, I'm not saying it's true. Or much more likely, Paul knows younger men and he knows one thing is all they can handle at a time. One, one. I can see Paul going, Titus, right here, dude. No, no, here, listen, no, squirrel. No, no, squirrel, right here, dude. One thing, we got it. Listen to me, self-control. No, no, self-control, okay? I have been a young man. I know how this works. 
Interesting, though, the, the, the Greek word that Paul uses here for self-control, he doesn't use anywhere else in this chapter. This is the third time he's instructed someone to, to have what is translated self-control. But this word packs a punch. It's only used nine times in the whole Bible, and it has several meanings. It means to be in one's right mind, to uh, exercise self-control, to put a moderate estimate upon oneself, to curb one's passions. All of that's wrapped up in this word that Paul uses. The word picture that I would use for young men is under control. Paul would say, as a missional young man, you are not somebody who consistently plays we until three in the morning. You're not someone who goes out with your buddies and drinking all night long. You're not someone who consistently works 70 hours a week so that you can get ahead. You're not someone who runs up credit card debt to buy a new phone or a new guitar or a new boat or a new car. He says, instead, you are somebody who has a sober estimate of who you are. You're somebody who, who, you don't think too little of yourself. You don't think too much of yourself. You understand who God created you to be. You're somebody who curbs your passions. You're not stoic. You're excited about life, but you curb those passions. You're someone who lives your life under control. The word that Jesus used was meek. He said meekness. Meekness means power under control. Now, guys, I'm going to be honest with you. We can't do this by ourselves. This one instruction, self-control, I I know almost no guys who can handle this. In fact, I don't know any guys who can handle this by themselves. We need each other. As guys, we need other guys in our life smacking upside the head saying, dude, that's just stupid. Just quit doing that, you know? We need older guys going, hey, here's some lessons that I've learned. As older guys, we need younger guys going, hey... How do I do this? What do I need to learn there? That's why men's groups are so important. Accountability partners are so important. It may be a life group that you're in with your wife, but you split off as men and women. Guys, I'm just telling you, you can't pull off the self-control thing all by yourselves. It's not going to happen. Women need other women as well. You need, you need to be connected with other women in, 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 in groups, but it's a different kind of dynamic. So Paul addresses older men, older women, younger women, younger men. And the final demographic that he looks at are slaves. In verse 7, it says, Slaves are are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing and not argumentative, not pilfering, not showing all, uh, uh, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Now, in 21st century America, it's hard for us to understand this verse. Because when we see the word slave, our mind goes to 17th century America and African Americans in chains. And it's a reprehensible picture. And how could Paul possibly tell those people to not be argumentative and to be submissive to their masters? But we have to understand that the slavery that Paul is talking about in first century Rome is completely different. It has almost nothing to do with that kind of slavery. Let me read a description of the slavery Paul was addressing. Slaves in first century Rome were found in all professions and generally had more opportunity for social advancement than free peasants. Unlike the vast majority of slaves in the United States and the Caribbean, they were able to work for and achieve freedom, and some freed slaves became independently wealthy. This social mobility applied especially to the household slaves, the only kind of slave that Paul addressed in his writings. Economically, socially, and with regard to freedom to determine their future, These slaves were better off than most free persons in the Roman Empire. 
Most free persons were rural peasants working as tenant farmers on the vast estates of wealthy landowners. You see, slavery in Paul's day wasn't racial, and often it wasn't permanent. There were more similarities to how someone who worked for a small business owner. So as we look at these verses, we can think of it as a worker. And Paul gives five instructions for workers. He says, submit to your boss. Try to do a good job. Don't be argumentative. Somebody said, don't be the devil's advocate. The devil doesn't need any help. (laughs) Don't steal. Show that you can be trusted. What's interesting is I love this phrase. In the English Standard Version, Paul says, if you do these things, if you're this kind of worker, you will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. What a beautiful phrase. It says that as a great worker, you make the gospel attractive. You make people want to know about God and to know about the salvation that you have. The word picture that I would use here would be trustworthy. As we are a trustworthy worker, we adorn the doctrine of God. But why would we live a missional lifestyle? Two motives that, we, that I pull out of these next verses, beginning with verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared. There's the first motive. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. I see two motivations here. The first motivation is the grace of God the grace of God. God, just because he loved me, not because of anything I did or any good in me, decided to save me, to give me a purpose, to give me hope. Where would you be without the grace of God? Where would you be today? I know where I would be. I would be toast. I wouldn't have the family that I have. I wouldn't have the life that I have. I would be, as Paul called, uh, Paul said, I would be helpless and hopeless lost in this world. Because of the grace of God, I have a future. I want other people around me to know what that grace is. I want them to know what it is to live a purposeful, joyful, fulfilled life. That's motivation one for the missional lifestyle. Motivation two is the blessed hope, Paul calls it. The fact that we can have eternal life. We have the keys to eternal life. What kind of person would know the key to eternal life with God and would not share it with people around them. So we are motivated to be to have a missional lifestyle as older men and older women, younger men, younger women, and workers because of the grace of God and the blessed hope that we have. So how do we conduct this missional lifestyle? Verse 7 says, Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. And then in the last verse of the chapter, it says, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. I love that. Let no one disregard you. Paul says we live a missional lifestyle with integrity, dignity, sound speech, and authority. And he says, when I live a missional lifestyle, No one can disregard me. Here's the deal, guys. Whether you are a man or a woman, whether you are young or you're old, whether you're a CEO or a barista, 
You are someone to be reckoned with. When you live this missional lifestyle, no one can disregard you. And here's the deal. This mission. I told you at the beginning, I was going to tell you what God's will for your life is. And I've told you. It's that you be missional and incarnational. And here's how you live it out. Here's the lifestyle you live. And it's easy for us to kind of dismiss that and go, well, that's fine, but who, who do I marry and, and where do I live? And gang, this mission that I'm describing is life and death. This is what life is about. This week in Charleston, we had headlines in the newspaper that a baby died under tragic circumstances less than two miles from where I'm standing right now. We don't know all that went on in that home. A friend of mine was one of the first responders and he described tragedy beyond belief. And gang, we missed it. We missed it. We were not there for that family. There are over 5,000 people who come through this building, not counting all the other campuses, this building, 5,000 people every weekend come and hear about the grace and the love of God and the the blessed hope. And then we walked out and somehow we never connected with this family who needed us. And here's the the, the truth. Your next door neighbor, the one across the street, that person in the next office over, that lady that rang up your purchase at Walmart, she desperately needs to know about the grace of God and the blessed hope And you're God's only plan. You're it. It's not me. It's not Greg. It's you. That's your mission. That's why you're here, is so that they can know. Are you on mission? Are you going to live that missional lifestyle for the people around you? Let me pray for you. Lord, it's so inadequate to say thank you for your grace. Your grace is what makes life possible. It is only because of your grace that I live and have a reason to live. Lord, I want to apologize for how much of my life is spent focused on my needs and my rights and what I want and how little of my life is focused on those who are helpless and hopeless, lost and dying in a world without you. Lord, I pray that you can burn down into our hearts deeply how important that it is as older men and women and young men and young women to be a beacon on a hill, to be hope in a hopeless world. Lord, I pray that you will just open our eyes to the call to your will in our lives. Lord, that's my prayer today in your name. Amen.